Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. Sorry for the little time off over the past couple weeks, guys. It's been busy here. Obviously, the holiday weekend. I hope you had a relaxing Memorial Day weekend. This past week was a busy one here at NMPBS. If you missed our show Friday night, I sat down with Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller for an exclusive interview following his State of the City address. The mayor has some encouraging programs and plans in the works, but the city is obviously still facing some pretty stiff challenges related to crime, homelessness, and police shootings. It had been a while since Mayor Keller spent nearly an hour with a journalist, and we talked about all of it. Friday night, we aired two excerpts from that interview, and this week, we'll air two more. Because of the time limitations of broadcast, we had to make a few small edits in that interview for New Mexico in Focus, but we felt like you should have a chance to hear all of it, in order. So I'm going to share the entire uncut interview here on the podcast. Keep an eye on this space later this week, too. I'll be posting two extra episodes. The first is Gene Grant's interview with Albuquerque City Councilor Dan Lewis. Gene asks the councilor for his reaction to the mayor's address and for his take on the issues impacting the city right now. Lewis has been a vocal critic of Keller for years, and he certainly didn't hold back with Gene, as you'll hear when we post that interview. Then, in the second extra episode, you'll hear analysis from a special line opinion panel as they react to the mayor's plans to expand affordable housing and strengthen public safety, particularly in Albuquerque's long-troubled downtown area. That's all coming your way this week on New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. Now, here's my interview with Mayor Tim Keller. Mayor Tim Keller, thanks for being here today on New Mexico and Focus. Good to be with you today. Um, now, in your State of the City speech on Saturday, you painted a picture of a city on the upswing in several key areas, public safety, economic development, uh, addressing homelessness and the affordable housing crisis. In a nutshell, what were some of the key data points that informed the tone of that speech? Well, I think we're seeing really the power of us uh, making a difference in Albuquerque. And it's something that we really, you know, after the pandemic and what we've been through even with inflation, and there's been a lot of tough times. But for the first time, a lot of our indicators are starting to go in the right direction. Now, slightly, and we're coming, you know, from a place that isn't great. So, uh, but I think there is some light that we're seeing, and that's what it's all about. And so it's things like the Gateway Center uh, being able to open this year. That, that will take care of 1,000 people a day when it's done and provide health, healing, addiction services, and housing. So we see that. We see our community safety department this summer should be now operating 24-7. It's taken 32,000 calls away from APD, giving people the right help at the right time. So when you layer these things in, uh, and then on top of the fact that even uh, some of the crime indicators, we're using a, a very different approach for crime fighting than we have in the past, highly technology driven, and it's a lot about using civilians when we can to free up officers to take calls. You sort of put these together with some larger built environment announcements. I mean, the Film Academy coming to the rail yards. I mean, we've been waiting for something at the rail yards for 40 years. And now we've got it. That construction is going to start this summer. So when you layer all these up, I think you see us sort of starting to realize that promise of Albuquerque, which is a city, you know, in a thousand square miles, basically, where we're the only urban hub. So people come to Albuquerque for all of those things, for opportunity, for healthcare, for fun and recreation. And even things like we're doing with the rail trail to reconnect our neighborhoods and provide a new landmark that will really define our city 
uh, much like the tram or the zoo. These are things that you know are coming in the next few years, and so we're starting to break ground on them and see the, that progress happening. And I think that's helping lift up Albuquerque. And lastly, I just touch on downtown. You know, again, long ways to go, but I think folks would agree since we uh, did some of our uh, work with the business partners and the team program and have worked on housing and support services, Downtown is definitely better than it was this time last year or six months ago. Long way to go, absolutely. But again, I think you see us turning that corner. We'll get into a lot of those specifics in a minute, but I wanna start with uh, homelessness as one of the issue areas. Um, we've been hearing for years that the Gateway Center that you mentioned is a major piece in addressing the homeless crisis here. What have been some of the big, biggest contributors to the delays in that project? And do you have a timeline on when that will be completed? Yeah, we do see it being able to reach uh, 1,000 people a day, which is what it used to take care of back when it was a hospital by the end of the year. And so we're on target for that. I think, unfortunately, in reverse order, you know, the most recent issue is some asbestos, which now uh, we've sort of remediated and are back on track. Before that, you know, it was a big zoning uh, battle with, you know, the, the neighborhood around it didn't want it. And so that had to go through the process that delayed it for quite some time. But what you see around this is the gateway is part of a uh, spectrum of things that we're trying to do around housing and homelessness. So that's just a 24-7 drop-off where we can take people, no barriers, and then they're connected with different services, whether it's housing or job training or addiction or treatment. And so it literally like is a gateway. That's, that's why we call it that. So it's a gateway to other services by other providers. But then you also look at, you know, we're trying to create more housing. We have a 30,000 housing unit deficit. I will get to that. I want to sure. stay on the gateway for a second, yeah, though. Sure. Um, the asbestos, were you aware of the instructions to shut down construction when it was found? And what were the points of failure when construction didn't stop right when it was found? You know, uh, actually, at my level, I, I heard there were concerns and, you know, said we got to take care of them. So those kinds of details, I'm sure our environmental health department or somebody like that can touch on those. Uh, I just know we had to stop. Uh, and so we did. And we had to come up with a plan for remediation. It is a the building itself is was built in multiple eras, sort of out and up. And so every wing is a different age and has different construction. So. You know, we should have found it in the first place, but it's not uncommon to have asbestos issues during construction. Now, let's talk about uh, so-called safe outdoor spaces for a minute. Um, they had been called that in the past, and I know you had been critical of city councils back and forth on do they like them, do they not like them, um, since the Coronado Park situation last year. What's your thinking on them now, and how do you see them fitting into the larger puzzle of solving the homeless issue here? So I do view, we want every tool in the toolkit, and so it's helpful to have a safe outdoor space tool. Now, we've rarely used it. We did use it twice, uh, especially for these drive-up areas for people living in their cars, and I think those were very successful. Now, in terms of having sort of this broader uh, setup like you see in Denver and something like that, Basically, the restrictions that council put on it make it almost impossible for a nonprofit to run. So every nonprofit that tried couldn't meet the criteria they set up. So they're not really feasible at this point uh, to the scale I think people had intended. But that's by ordinance, so it, it is what it is. Uh, but I'm so glad we have you know variations of it available should we need it because we definitely need you know every approach we can to this challenge. Now, several folks who used to camp at Coronado Park are <coughs> suing the city, and I just wanted to ask about the core contention there that the city's made it impossible for people to be anywhere outside of the shelter context. Is that accurate? 
Well, all you have to do is drive around Albuquerque. It's definitely not accurate. I mean, there are people outside the shelter construct all over our city, for better or worse. So um, I think that's just, that's just not true. So I do know that that court case is almost resolved. But I think what's important, look, we learned Coronado Park when we closed it, you know, there were all sorts of eminent issues, like there was a murder and there were, uh, you know, now documented uh, trafficking of, I forget the number of fentanyl pills and all of these issues there. So we had to do what we had to do there. But what we saw at first and, um, you know, I think it's uh, first in Indian school or second in Indian school, we did that very different. We used the Houston model, a housing first approach where we actually got something like 80%, maybe even 90% of them into a, uh, into a place where they can sleep, like directly. And that's now what we try and do going forward. So that literally we say, you know, we, we, we have to not have this encampment for all the right legal reasons and safety reasons, but also we will literally drive you right now to an apartment. And that's what we were able to do there. So I think we figured out a way to do this in a much better way. And that's the model we're gonna use going forward. Back to the court case, just briefly. Why do you think it's almost over? Um, it was just an update I got that said uh, that we're, we're in pretty sound legal grounds for what we had to do. Uh, but again, we, you know, we'll see. It's obviously up to a, a judge. Now, many unhoused people, you mentioned 80, 90% were able to get into shelters, but we obviously know that some people refuse to go into shelters, whether it's out of fear or uh, other reasons. What is the solution there for those people? Well, it depends on the person. You know, homelessness is very complicated, and I think we've learned that you, you really can't put people into different categories, and so literally it depends on the person. It could be an addiction-related issue. It could be there are some people who just like they, it, it's sort of a more of a libertarian approach where they just like don't want to be, you know, wherever they want to be. So, you know, that that's always the most difficult situation, but what we're trying to do is solve the other end, which is for the vast majority of people who want to be off the street, my approach is let's help them and let's get them off the street. And then if you know one day we only have people who meet that criteria, we'll deal with that. But right now, if I can get half the people off our streets into housing, I'll take that. So that's what we're focused on. Okay, uh, we've heard allegations that CD employees had confiscated and sometimes thrown out some homeless people's belongings. Is that still happening? You know, there's pretty strict rules and protocols on all of that, and uh, those are even run through multiple layers of sort of advisory committees and MRAC and all of these things. So I'm not aware of any specific violations. I know there's always rumors and myths about everything. If there are, we'll certainly hold them accountable, but there shouldn't be. I know you mentioned the Gateway Center. What is the city doing to address the root causes of homelessness, including addiction, mental health, um, lack of economic opportunity? I know the gateway is a big part of that, but outside the gateway too. Mm -hmm. Well, we actually want to have several sort of mini gateways all over the city. We want a distributed model. Now, a lot of contractors run those. So, you know, the, the city spends tens of millions of dollars every year with nonprofits who provide those services. But we also know that, you know, the, the county is, of course, has the behavioral health tax and they're, they're sort of fundamentally uh, have jurisdiction over those places. But we want to make sure the gateway is at least one place where people can go 24-7 with no barriers. And that's what we don't have. 
So in Albuquerque's never had this, where this is where we're behind almost every major city in the country. Until we have that to connect people up to where those services are, that's gonna be a challenge. But look, the other things that we're doing, we've got to build our housing stock. You know, I know uh, you mentioned that, but if we need 30,000 units, like clearly, you know, the, the, the answer is a place to sleep at night that's safe and, uh, and has some services. It's not, um, you know, uh, essentially saying that, that we can't, housing and homelessness are definitely related. So we're working on that piece. And then the new ACS department. So we're making sure that at least the people who do need help are getting social workers who come out to them uh, and meeting them where they're at, walking with them on their journey. That's what that department's all about. And this is you know, the first of its kind in the country. So uh, I think these things, when you put them together, you see at least that Albuquerque has some answers. And a lot of the cities around us, they're, they're swallowed by these problems or they're just overwhelmed by homelessness and crime. And I think this is where part of the state of the city is about our promise is still alive. Like we still have a chance in Albuquerque to actually have a vibrant, you know, incredible city. Uh, some of these other cities right now are just completely caving under these issues. And so that's why we've, we've got a fighting chance here. And that's why we, we are fundamentally uh, and cautiously optimistic. Uh, the 30,000 units, I wanna get there and housing. What's your number one priority for creating more affordable housing to shrink that gap? So we know when you have a gap that's 30,000, the city, what we're owning is we're saying, let's take these old hotels and convert them into apartments. And so we have one underway right now, about 100 units are gonna be finished in just a few months. And we're looking at our second purchase uh, pretty soon. So we're gonna do what we can pending funding to sort of lead the way and demonstrate how to do that. But when you need 30,000 units, like 100 at a time isn't gonna get you there. And so that brings us to this zoning discussion, which is now in front of council. Uh, June 5th, they're gonna have a very tough decision. And it's really gonna be, you know, are, are we gonna have a zoning code that we do now, which is very restrictive, very outdated, uh, and it essentially incentivizes suburban sprawl, which will then hollow out our core. So that's where we're going, unless we change it. And what we're proposing is to change it to really uh, grow, fill in, and sort of fill up a little bit. And the biggest thing, ironically, is Casitas. You know, it's, it's, it's a place for you know, your, your grandparents or like your adult kid. Uh, that, that is the single biggest thing we could do. Uh, but there's other things about converting commercial uh, real estate into residential. So converting empty office buildings to apartments and then converting hotels to apartments. All those are things we can do to uh, incentivize, I think, a, a vibrant city that truly delivers on this idea that, you know, Albuquerque is sort of supposed to be the urban core for New Mexico. If that vote doesn't go your way, what's the <clears throat> next step then after at that point? Well, I will say this, first off, I hope at least some of it and the majority of it passes. I mean, we're open to amendments, we're open to changes, you know, so I, I do really hope it's not sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater on this. That would be devastating for our city. Now, we'll just have to see, actually. That's what I'll spend the summer doing if it fails, is uh, coming up with a new plan. But look, I, it took us about three plans to figure out Film Center at the rail yards. And we're on round two of a stadium. And so uh, I think folks have learned also, we're on like round eight of the gateway. You know, I'm not gonna give up and I'll keep problem solving until we get it right. Um, now HUD data shows that rent <clears throat> in Albuquerque is at more than 30% in three years. How can people afford to stay in a city if that continues? And is adding more housing the solution that solves that? 
So fundamentally, that price is driven by supply and demand. Uh, and I think that's something, you know, over time that has just become clear in, in every city in America. So yes, we have to add to the supply. Now the key is we need to add to the supply at sort of all the different price points where there's rental pressure. And so again, that's why the city's really focused on that sort of supportive and affordable end. But we also need the private sector just to have more units. And it's also, I think, you know, this does go back to 2008 and this notion of like, you know, what size of house should people have and this kind of thing. And, you know, I want to hopefully understand that like what Albuquerque doesn't need is just a bunch of track houses like out in the middle of the Mesa. Like we need, you know, planning around neighborhoods, around schools, around public safety, and we need all sorts of sizes of houses to match where people are at. And of course, that was a big mistake that America made in 2008. Uh, rent stabilization measures failed at city council. They failed in the state legislature. It, what other concrete steps can your administration take to curb the spikes in rent before we get mm. uh, fill out the, the housing market, as you say? We actually have a rent support fund, uh, which is something we've been putting money into. And so I would encourage people to reach out to the city if they want access to that. So one of these is we can sort of um, buy time for people. Uh, and then, of course, we also need to enforce uh, I think the biggest thing is rental discrimination, where uh, owners and landlords won't take, whether it's vouchers or rent subsidies. And so our Office of Civil Rights is now keyed up to do that, and we have some ordinances behind it. So this is another area where we want to push back against people who are not allowing those kinds of programs. Um, and then in the short term, too, I mean, look, we do need to think about employment and so, so how we can actually sort of lift up people's median income. And you know, that brings us to some of the other things that we're doing in the city. Uh, so those are different ways we can help. And you know, unfortunately, like for better or worse, the, the state law is what it is. So unless that's changed, we can't do anything directly with rental prices. Sure. Now moving to public safety, um, in your speech, you said that we need to address gun violence and that we can't, as you just said, wait for the state or the feds to take action, that the city needs to work to create some reasonable solutions. What specifics do you have in mind there? So. We're going to try something out, and it's, uh, it's, it's relatively bold. We have not heard of it in other areas, but we're basically triangulating the federal thousand feet from a school rule. And so what basically is the case is that downtown Albuquerque, if you map this out, all of downtown actually should be a gun-free zone under federal law already. All we're going to do is start enforcing that whenever there's a crime. So if you're brandishing a firearm, you know, outside, you're, you're, you're driving around shooting it and so forth. Now we have almost no options. I mean, these are like misdemeanor charges, uh, if that right now, if, if, if no one is hurt, right? But now we'll say, we're going to take you federal because you're violating the federal uh, ban on guns near a school. And that is a very serious charge and handled in the federal court system, which has a lot more staying power. So we're gonna test this out downtown. We're gonna see how it works. We're gonna start slow, but uh, it literally might change the entire feel of downtown. Now, we also see potential of this in other areas uh, like uptown and around the malls. And so, you know, it's all pending resources and so forth. And our U.S. attorney has been amazing in that office in terms of their willingness to look at this concept. But in a state like New Mexico, where we have uh, local preemption, where we can't have our own gun laws, uh, this is just about basically enforcing a federal law that exists. But that is a huge deal. And so we're going to test that out. And uh, I think it's going to make downtown a lot safer. And it's something that uh, I think, like our community safety department, if it works, you're going to see a lot of other cities doing it. You mentioned the uh, uh, U.S. <clears throat> attorney 
have you spoken with them and are they prepared to handle that caseload? So uh, we have, of course, spoken uh, at length about this idea. We would never try something like this without working with them. And so they're willing to give it a try. And again, we're going to do it at the nexus of a crime. So when a crime's happened, that's layered on top. And that's going to sort of also minimize the caseload. Uh, and so, yeah, we're all willing to give it a shot. Uh, now, let's talk about the ongoing reform effort at APD. In 2014, the Justice Department came in um, to address a longstanding practice of unconstitutional use of force, a culture within APD that helped uh, continue that. What, from your perspective, is different between then and now when it comes to constitutional policing specifically? You know, I think we went through a real journey on this, and I think it's an example of a little bit about what I shared earlier in terms of us trying to make sure that at a minimum we, we listen, learn, and then we act, and we cycle through that. So when I first came in, you know, I, I think it's fair to say in the past that reform was sort of tacit and it was about checking boxes. So I came in and said we we're going to do exactly what the monitor wants us to do. That did not work either. And so that was my lesson where that, in a sense, backfired on a number of fronts. We were getting advice that was not good for Albuquerque. We were getting a hodgepodge of best practices that, again, had like nothing to do with our city. And we were also getting some practices that just were not appropriate, like what happened with sort of taser versus firearms. So about two years ago, we said we're going to try it again a different way. We are going to be committed to reform and we're going to get this done, but we are doing it our way. We are creating every policy with input from best practices, but we're not just saying yes to everything from some other city. And that has made all the difference in the world because we internalize it. We own it. It's not being done to us. It's something we're voluntarily doing. So when you pair that with the Office of the Superintendent of Reform, which is like our internal monitor, basically, We've set up this situation where we write policies, we change policies, we adapt, and then we hold ourselves accountable through that independent office. And that has enabled us to get 92% compliant. We made more progress in the last two years than we did in the last six combined. And so we're actually in a very good place. We're in the home stretch on this. Now, last year, despite that, people, <clears throat> police did shoot 18 people in the city, and that is a record for a single year. How do you square that figure with the nine years, the $10 million spent, and what you just explained um, under the consent decree? What do taxpayers have for that money spent and the time that we've invested in this as a city? Well, I think the money investment question is is debatable. I would agree with you. I mean, I, I part of the reason why we have to do our own work now is because we've had a hit and miss situation with what all these consultants have been telling us. And that's why you also see us cutting the amount of money we're spending on it. Uh, we want to spend money on you know, folks like civilians who review video to hold our officers accountable. So when it comes to these shootings, there's a couple of things. Those, aren't, those things aren't actually necessarily directly related, right? If crime is going up or if um, drug trafficking is going up and things like this, you can see an increase of shooting regardless. Now, they also could be related, so I understand that. But I think there's a couple of things. One is we fixed this notion of like taser versus a firearm. We fixed that. That was actually a policy we got from the DOJ, and I think that cost people lives. So that's one thing where I think at least we did, you know, hopefully in the end, the right thing. The second thing is when there are inappropriate uses of force, we're holding ourselves accountable. That's what the DOJ is all about. And so I think on that mark, which is what the compliance and monitoring is about, we're doing much better. What would you tell to a mayor um, in a city that is entering into one of these similar consent decrees? Is it effective in the long term if you can get your hands on it and kind of sculpt it, like you said, to make it fit your own city? 
You know, that's a, a really good question. Actually, mayors ask me that quite a bit. Uh, and I always tell them, you know, for our city, it had to happen. And I supported it because of where we were before. And it will be a reason to essentially force you to do the things that your department should have been doing in the first place. So if you can't get it done without the consent decree, like you better agree to that because that's the only way to get it done. And it can be tough because of, uh, you know, the culture and all of these different practices that develop. But I do say this, I say what, what, what we learned. I said, you need to do it your way. So learn from other cities, but you shouldn't have a single policy that's like, well, we got that from Detroit or we got that from Portland. No, no, it's your policy and you have to own that policy. And that was the big shift that we made. So those are usually the two things that I tell them. Uh, now, let's talk about crime. In your speech, you cited a 40% decrease in property crimes, an 8% decrease in violent crimes. What period of time were you measuring for those? And I just want to know how you compiled those specific figures. Sure. Well, I think those are year-to-date compared to year-to-date last year. So they should be year-over-year. Year. But, you know, in terms of how they were compiled, you'd have to, you'd have to check with the Real-Time Crime Center on, on that. Okay. Um, Albuquerque did see a record number of homicides last year. 121, and for a couple decades, the city had averaged about 50 a year. What's driving the doubling of people killed violently here? You know, there are really three things, and we see them tragically coming together all the time in our city. Number one is addiction. Almost every, uh, I think if, if you add up all these together, 90% of the homicides involve these three uh, factors. So addiction, some sort of drug involved, whether somebody's on a drug, it's not just that they're buying or selling a drug, it's they're actually drug-induced. The other aspect is domestic violence. A huge percentage of these happen in that situation in a home, which makes them very hard to prevent. And then the third thing is a gun. Look, none of these would have been deadly. I mean, more or less, uh, I, I, there certainly could be knives and things like this, but most of them would not have taken a life if there was not a gun. So you put those three things together, and that's why you have such a deadly homicide rate here in Albuquerque. Now, uh, you've let go of the plan for 1,200 officers when you took office um, in Albuquerque. How has your thinking evolved over the time that you've been in office um, into how many officers Albuquerque needs to be safe? You know, I think at first it was based on studies. That's where we got this 1,200 number from. And so, you know, we all like studies. I mean, it's just kind of a thing. And I, I think similar to the DOJ, I've learned that, you know, what we want is a safe city. That's what we want. It's not about the number of officers. So we're not hanging our hat on a particular number. And also, when those studies were done, these were about 10 years old now. Policing was different. This was before the consent decree. This was also before our community safety department. And I think uh, most importantly, it was also before just general shortage of law enforcement officers all across the country. So what's changed is basically we have a way that we think we can get to adequately uh, keep our community safe in a different way. It's a multi-pronged approach. So number one is we also do retention now. So we had, we didn't really realize this until we looked at the numbers, but the biggest problem with the, the rank and file in the department was that there were so many people leaving. Like that was costing us more to the bottom line than a lack of recruiting because we had 100 every year. We were meeting our recruiting goals. Yet the, the department was basically flat. It was because of the retention. So now we pay a lot more attention to retention. We also pay more attention to cadets. You know, cadets were always left out of, because of the union collective bargaining agreements and so forth, cadets were always left out of all of the compensation, different issues that we ironed out. We've now fixed that. But I think most importantly are the two other factors. 
Uh, one is civilianization. We are trying to make sure that there is no one with a badge that is sitting behind a desk, unless they're doing like investigations, but like we want them fighting crime. And before, even with reform, we had a bunch of officers reviewing you know, videotape and things like this. And there's also bias there too. I mean, there's other reasons for that. But we've, we're really civilianizing as much as we can. And the last one is technology. You know, at the end of the day, the technology we have now, we were way behind. When I started, the real-time crime center was not real-time. Like, literally, there was almost nothing real-time about it. It was just reviewing videotape. So now we're kind of caught up to most cities in America uh, with all sorts of technology. But a lot of it is like license plate readers, the automated speed cameras that are giving speeding tickets. But these are just, they're substitutes for, you know, thousands of officers. I mean, that's basically what they are. Uh, but they're more effective and, uh, you know, they're also uh, a reality. There's no, I don't think there's another way to get there. So we think if we continue to use the right investments in civilians and in technology and then work on retention and recruiting still, we can adequately keep our community safe. So that means we don't need a, a magic number. Uh, and also now at this point, like a fairy tale number. I mean, there's no way in the next five years anyone's getting to 1,200 officers no matter what you do. And I don't actually think that's the right thing for the city. Now, mentioning retention of the rank and file um, and how that relates to the consent decree. Uh, we've heard some police officers and from the city of itself in some examples that officers aren't allowed to do their jobs. That's their perception under the consent decree. Do you believe that's true? You know, not anymore. I think one of the challenges in that era where I said we were just saying, you know, the monitor, you know, we have to do whatever the monitor says, that's where that rub was. Now morale is very different at APD, and they understand the rules of constitutional policing. And so I think that has drastically changed. And so, uh, yes, I think that was a, a definitely an issue going for, or in the past. But going forward, you know, this is part of the getting 92% compliance. We're trained. I mean, we weren't even, you know, we had to go through all this training and so forth. We also have, you know, about half the department is new, which is good because they've been through a modern CASA approved academy. And so that's helped a lot too. And so I think it's a vastly different place where, you know, there's always going to be some of those issues. I'm not disagreeing with that. But you don't get to 92% compliance unless actually there's buy-in from the rank and file. Uh, now, of course, you mentioned the Albuquerque Community Safety Department. How are they helping ease the burden on APD? The short answer is 32,000 calls. So think about that. These are 911 calls, and they're calls that if the ACS, the Community Safety Department, did not exist, would have been taken by police or fire. And there's two things about that. One is, so literally, it's free, it's improving our response time. So police response times are improved by almost an hour for most of the categories. That is, an, that is amazing. I mean, no one really thought that would ever happen because of the lack of officers. But it turns out that if you pull 32,000 calls out of the queue, you can respond faster. So, and again, these are, these are lower level responses, right? These aren't, because we still, for priority one and two, our responses, I think, are under 15 minutes. It's all the other ones that take hours. The other thing is the ACS response is around 38 minutes, which is pretty reasonable, again, for a non-life-threatening situation. So they're also getting there faster, and then they're able to provide transport or connect people with services, or just de-escalate the situation, or reconnect people with family. So they're getting a right response like at a faster time. So this is creating these sort of ripple effects in the law enforcement side that is you know, really changing, I think, the way our city looks at uh, 
how we respond to emergency response. And so, I, interestingly, you know, there was always skepticism in police and fire about this new department. And now it's like their favorite department, right? They're like, I'm so glad I don't have to go to that call. I'm, I would be there in four hours instead of 38 minutes. And I mean, I'm not a trained social worker, you know, if I'm an officer. And so uh, they're going to go take a violent crime call. Uh, and that's what we need them doing. So they actually feel sort of empowered. Uh, and like the burden they're carrying is also a little bit less. Just quickly to clarify before we move on to another topic, um, that 32,000 figure, over what period of time was that? Um, I think that's a year and four months since okay. we kind of started it, which I believe was, was roughly around the end of last summer. Okay, and when will that department be up and running 24-7? I know in your speech you said seven days a week, <clears throat> but 24-7. Yeah, so now it's seven days a week, and we're, all we're missing is a graveyard shift. And so uh, the, the budget the council passed, which is great, they funded that. And so I think by the fall, we should be open 24-7. All right. Moving on to economic development, the economy. That Saturday, <coughs> you talked about um, high-speed fiber, making that available for every city in the home. Um, what's the timeline on that? And will everyone in the city be able to afford it once it is available? You know, this was something that really flew under the radar, I think, when it came out and when we announced it. And it's, I can't exactly remember. There was some reason for it. It wasn't COVID, but it was, it was sort of something like that. And I think it's exciting. Basically, there's a, a regional company who does affordable high speed, and they're laying their own fiber. And that's important because they don't have to, you know, fight with franchise agreements with the larger, you know, giant multinational corporations. So they have committed to laying their own fiber to every uh, business and home in Albuquerque. And they're also, uh, their whole program is about affordable high-speed internet. And so uh, it's a matter of time. I think it's a five-year rollout. Uh, we could get you some more details on that. So it's going to take some time. But it'll effectively end the digital divide here. And so we're very excited about it. But, you know, it's, it's still, you know, years away. But I saw them digging. I mean, they're real. They're adding fiber. So as long as that company keeps going, we gave them the franchise rights and the licensing to do it. That's sort of the city's role and the easements and so forth. And so now it is in their hands to sort of finish the job. But as long as they do, uh, it's going to be an amazing thing for our city that we've, we've long wanted. Uh, you also talked about a different way to connect people, the rail trail. Uh, the city secured $40 million for that project. Is that enough to get it done? And do you have a timeline on this project too? So we're hoping to break ground on this project this summer as well. And it's, it's just such an exciting idea. So it's, it's this, you know, parkway, pedestrian parkway that connects the rail yards along downtown and then it curves all the way to Old Town. That is incredible uh, to connect like our two sort of biggest tourism destinations and sort of the hearts of our city, old and new. And uh, the idea is, of course, it's along a, a railroad track, which is why it's called the Rail Trail. But that project basically roughly has eight phases. We have enough funding for four, and two of the phases are going to start this year. So that's sort of the answer to your question. Uh, but the whole thing is going to be a long-term run. But we're going to start it, and again, getting half of this done is also an incredible thing for our city. It's something we never thought. This idea, by the way, is also like 30 years old, I think. I've seen a lot of proposals on this. And no one could really sort of put it together. And, um, you know, for us earlier this year, we got some funding from the governor, we got some funding from the uh, federal delegation and from um, the president's office and the Department of Transportation. And then we also worked out some easement and rail issues. And, you know, all of a sudden it's ready to go. 
Uh, now, on the environment, um, the water authorities pushed back against the Air Force for its contamination at, uh, F for the decades-long leak at Kirtland Air Force Base. The city's been silent, at least publicly, on that issue. Are there conversations that we don't hear about, and does the city consider that cleanup a priority? Well, it, it is all through the city member is, is a half the water authority. So in this situation, we just work through the water authority, and that's a joint board of city and county. So from our perspective, there's no difference between the water authority and the city. Uh, that's, that's what they do for the city. And, you know, I worked on this back as a state senator, and it's, I mean, nothing is adequate till the plume is dry. And so I know it's been through ups and downs with different administrations out there. But I think the water authority at least, um, you know, has been a steward of this project. The state also has played a key role, and I think that's one area we could maybe use a reinvigoration of what the state protection did. You know, ironically, it was the, it was the last administration was very firm on this issue with the Air Force. And they have much stronger tools than the Water Authority. This is not even close. And so, uh, you know, it's something we may need to sort of resuscitate those discussions as well. Uh, now, I want to shift quickly to sports in the Albuquerque area and stadiums. Uh, the city's inspector general found that Albuquerque's Parks and Rec Department used taxpayer dollars from Albuquerque to pay for the Gladiator Stadium project in Rio Rancho. What do you say to citizens here in Albuquerque about their money going towards an attraction outside city limits? Well, two things. First, it was just because of the pandemic. It was never supposed to go to Rio Rancho, and it's actually moving back. So, you know, what happened, remember, Tingley was being used for, for shots and vaccines. So the team moved to Rio Rancho. And so that's, that's how it happened. No one ever wanted it to go out there. And so uh, also we are bringing it back. So I think this issue actually goes away pretty quick. I will also note that that, each, that opinion that you referenced was repeatedly by lawyers uh, found not to be legal. So that's just one thing too. Um, you know, the, the issue about where it is, I agree with. But we support our sports teams. I mean, I get capital outlay funding for nets at the isotopes. The United has all sorts of funding to convert the baseball to soccer. So, you know, the city supports our sports teams and our venues a lot, and I think it's a good thing. We do need to do it in Albuquerque, so I agree with that, but this is just a function of the pandemic. Sure. Uh, you mentioned that that statement being refuted by legal opinions. Um, that was your rep representation, the city's representation that disagreed with that, with the inspector general. Um, and according to KRQE reporting, the AG hasn't opened an investigation. Is that something that you've been involved with? Have you had to cooperate with that investigation at all? You know, I haven't been involved at all, but I'm fully confident in, in the legal opinion. And even if it is, I mean, these, these kinds of issues with capital outlay projects, I mean, this is about like, you know, uh, kitchen equipment for nonprofits. We do work through these issues all the time. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're certainly happy to help with whatever, but I know, um, you know, you need to be a lawyer to give a legal opinion. And so uh, I, I, I trust lawyers on this issue. When will that turf be moving back? You said that it'll be happening. I think it's scheduled to move uh, this summer after their season. And that was only because of sponsorship agreements that they were already tied into. And again, it'll go to Tingley, which, you know, isn't the city either. I mean, you know, that's the state actually. And so Tingley can use it for whatever they want. Uh, but if there's, you know, some other purpose or whatever, I mean, I think then it, then it becomes Tingley's issue to deal with. But uh, we're happy to support our teams. And so, you know, we're not giving the netting back at the isotopes uh, or, you know, changing the funding that we give the United uh, to take the mound off the field. And these are all sort of part of what Parks and Rec does. So I think in general, they do a good job. Uh, 
you mentioned uh, NM United. That stadium bond proposal obviously failed um, back when you were running for re-election, and um, we've heard about it maybe going to Balloon Fiesta Park. <coughs> What's the status of that, and where does it go from here? Um, this is a really interesting one. You know, I think uh, the vote was the vote, so we respect that. Uh, and so I think we learned a couple of things, and I set some criteria. I said, look, if we're going to be involved in a stadium, it's going to honor what the voters said. So number one is we're not going to be the majority investor in the stadium. It's not going to be a city stadium because voters didn't want that. I also said it's not going to be downtown. I, I wanted it there, but I understand voters didn't. And so we said it needs to be in an existing place where there's existing infrastructure like parking and access so it just doesn't create all these burdens on the city, right, uh, to build out around it. And so uh, when you look at those criteria, uh, really the Balloon Fiesta interestingly fits in a, in a really good way. You know, we have this amazing facility that's rarely used throughout the year. And we can actually do it. There's a pocket, which is you know, you don't even really think about it, but when you drive down into the Balloon Fiesta, that's where it would go, meaning that it's right under the power lines, so it also won't affect ballooning. I mean, my first answer was that people are like, why, you know, what about balloons? And I was like, well, when you put it under power lines that are higher than that, like the balloons already know like they can't go there. So it doesn't interfere with Balloon Fiesta. And so now the ball really is in the team's court. Uh, we have enough funding to do the, the sort of under the, the ground improvements, which we need to do anyway. Electricity, sewer, water, we've needed all that out there. So we're going to do that, and then we've got to fix the parking. And then they would actually build the stadium. And we'll have an MOU and stuff to figure out how to share it with Balloon Fiesta. So really, we're going to do our part, and I think we need to do that anyway, whether there's a stadium or not. And uh, if, if the team can deliver on the financing and what they need to do for a stadium, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have an agreement to actually make it work. Um, I want to move on to um, your relationship with council. Two city councilors recently proposed a restructuring of sorts at the top of the city that if passed, it would have voters decide whether or not to weaken the mayor's uh, power, shift many of your duties to a city appointed manager or council appointed manager. Uh, what do you say to voters who would maybe would have to consider this in the fall. They haven't voted to put it on the ballot yet, but what are the advantages to the current system in your mind? You know, I think there's really fundamentally two. Number one is you have individual accountability. So, you know, people can like me or not like me, but I think it's pretty clear in this town, like the mayor is held accountable for everything, like from the weather to behavioral health. I mean, you know, you name it. So um, that is important because we elect the mayor and we get to choose the mayor. So. Uh, you know, when you have a city manager, it's a very different setup. And also, look at like reform. You know, in that, in that situation, the police chief would report to either a committee or an unelected leader. And so I don't think you could do things like actually work on reform. So, you know, look, the, the trade-off is really, do you want government by committee and an unelected manager? I just don't think that's a way to lead an organization. It's not a way to drive innovation. Um, and it, I will say this, it might be a little bit more stable. I will agree to that point. But I would trade innovation uh, and leadership in a second for like stability. And so I also think uh, if you look at, you know, checks and balances, you know, to me there's something democratic about branches of government fighting with each other. Like this is America and this is what we have in Albuquerque. If you get rid of a branch of government, I mean, you really have a committee of you know, people who are beholden to just a region of the city, right? Just a slice of the city. No one is looking at the city as a whole. And that, that really worries me. 
because you know people get provincial like they want blank in their neighborhood and that kind of thing and who represents the city in that world the answer is no one other than an unelected city manager uh, now you're almost halfway through your second term as mayor what are your top three priorities um, as you finish out the rest of this term so the first one is uh, to finish out this spectrum of services that are respect with related to homelessness and housing. And so ACS is part of that transporting. The gateway is part of providing those services. And then, you know, increasing the housing stock is sort of on the other end. The second thing is public safety. So, you know, we do have to get, you know, fundamentally, we need to feel safe. I think one challenge is people don't feel safe. And that's the hardest part, actually. But we also have to get you know, our statistics and crime numbers in a way that sort of actually demonstrate that we're safer. So that has to do with what we're doing at APD uh, with the different initiatives around technology and civilianization. But also think about homicide. I mean, you know, we quadrupled, I think, the number of homicide detectives. And now you know, we used to catch, if you shot someone in Albuquerque, it used to be you have a 50% chance of getting arrested. That's terrible. Now it's like 92. If you shoot someone in this town, we will catch you. And so that sends a tremendous message about just the criminal justice system actually having a chance and functioning in Albuquerque. So that's the second priority. The third is really around built environment. You know, we're investing in our underserved neighborhoods in ways that are, um, you know, generationally defining. Whether it's, you know, new community centers, we, I think we're in four new or refurbished community centers all in underserved areas new library in the International District. We're at, we've added thousands of lights in historically uh, ignored communities that literally didn't even have lighting. Uh, we've repaved all the roads in underserved communities. So we're really trying to lift up the parts of our city that need it most. Uh, it's really an equity-driven approach to built environment. So that's kind of the third piece. But part of that is the rail trail. You know, I think that's something that actually hopefully will unite us all and connect us all uh, across from all walks of life and some of our older, more challenged neighborhoods and also be good for things like tourism and so forth. So uh, those are, uh, I'd say, the, the top three categories going forward. Are you going to run for a third term of mayor to help see those things through? You know, I mean, that's, that's certainly what I'm looking at right now. It's not a secret. Uh, and I think a lot of these things, too, we're looking at completion. I'm talking about groundbreakings now in the state of the city. But if we're looking at completions, we're looking at like 2026, 2027. And so uh, right now, that's driving me to say, hey, I want to make sure and be here to, to stick around for that. And even getting out of the consent decree. Mayor Keller, thank you so much for coming here on New Mexico in Focus. You got it. Thanks so much. Thanks to everyone who contributed to the podcast this week. Thank you to Mayor Keller for sitting down with me. And as always, thank you for listening. Keep an eye on our social media pages. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week. We'll be posting updates and other news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.